Attention Northwest Arkansas businesses and talent seekers. Introducing Onboard NWA.com, your hyperlocal job board crafted for our unique community. Struggling to find the perfect match for your job openings? Onboard NWA simplifies the hiring process, connecting you with the region's top talent through tailored talent matching solutions. Whether you're an employer seeking expertise or a professional looking for your next opportunity, Onboard NWA is here for you. Discover more at onboardnwa.com and let's build the future of Northwest Arkansas together. Northwest Arkansas, Randy here, bringing you a quick word from our sponsor, Signature Bank of Arkansas. Since 2005, Signature Bank has been all about empowering our community with local ownership and top-notch banking services. Signature Bank's roots run deep with assets over a billion dollars, and they're right here in your backyard with branches in Bentonville, Rogers, Springdale, Fayetteville, and now including Harrison and Jonesboro. With a growing family of more than 200 teammates, they're ready to serve you with the warmth only a true community bank can offer. And they've got Banco C, the first bilingual bank in Arkansas, to ensure that banking is for everyone. So give Signature Bank a call at 479-684-3700 or visit Signature.Bank online. Mention you heard about them on the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast for that personal touch. Signature Bank of Arkansas. Big on assets, local at heart, and a proud member of the FDIC and an equal housing lender. Welcome to the Northwest Arkansas Council's Future Is Now Speaker Series, brought to you in collaboration with the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast. Together, we're working with the Northwest Arkansas Council on numerous exciting initiatives, such as workforce housing, workforce development, upskilling, recruitment and retention, and we're also working with the Northwest Arkansas Council Talent Network. And of course, We're hosting the quarterly program, Onward Ozarks. Our aim is to join forces, share the good news of Northwest Arkansas, and contribute to making our region one of the best in the country. You've heard me say many times on this podcast that the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast began as a passion project, and it has since evolved into a business committed to shaping the future of this region for ourselves and the generations to come. In partnership with the Northwest Arkansas Council, we're creating a series of podcast episodes, including this one, featuring the Future Is Now speaker series. Throughout the year, we'll be attending these events, capturing inspiring stories from the presenters, and gathering valuable feedback from attendees. Our goal is to share both educational and entertaining content, providing a glimpse into the Northwest Arkansas we aspire to build. Today's episode spotlights Emily Hamilton, an economist that focuses on urban economics and land use policy, and Northwest Arkansas's own Matthew Petty, who specializes in contemporary municipal 
best practices, including a technique that cities can use to guide development called pattern zones. So without further ado, let's dive into today's episode of the Northwest Arkansas Council's Future Is Now speaker series in association with the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast. Go ahead. You can cue the music now. It's time for another episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas, the podcast covering the intersection of business, culture, entrepreneurship, and life in general here in the Ozarks. Whether you are considering a move to this area or trying to learn more about the place you call home, we've got something special for you. Here's our host, Randy Wilburn. Good afternoon. Thank you, everybody, for being here. We really appreciate the opportunity to co-brand with this great organization, help in any way that we can. We exist as the North Arkansas Board of Realtors. Give member support. We handle all of the MLS professional standards. We train, give as many classes and education opportunities as we can to support our members who are out supporting you as well as your clients. So that is why we exist. And we are very proud to have you all here in our house today. So thank you very much. Thank you. So we're thrilled to have such a great turnout today. This is our second iteration of the Future Is Now speaker series. I see some familiar faces, but certainly some new faces. And again, thank you all for joining. Today, we're going to talk about the effect of zoning and land use policies are having on our housing development in Northwest Arkansas. Before we begin, I want to give a special thank you again to the Board of Realtors, As partners in our work, we're very thankful for you for agreeing to host us today. You've been wonderful partners, and thank you to Chance, the board of directors, Cindy, and your team. Thank you so much. Also want to thank the Walton Family Foundation for their generous support for the speaker series. Real quick, my name is Duke McClarty. I'm the executive director of the Workforce Housing Center, which is a new work stream, a relatively new work stream under the Northwest Arkansas Council's umbrella. We're at an inflection point here in Northwest Arkansas. Historically, the region has been regarded as one of the nation's top regions to live with housing affordability being one of the main attractions. Over the last few years, the region has experienced exponential rise in housing costs fueled by a rapid population increase, elevated construction costs, and ultimately the underproduction of homes. Teachers, nurses, firefighters, and other members of the essential workforce across Northwest Arkansas are being displaced from our central business core because they can no longer afford housing. Creating housing optionality for that workforce is at the core of our work every day. For those who couldn't make our first speaker series in February, we are bringing a series of renowned experts from across the country to share best practices that they're seeing within their work streams. I hope today you'll leave energized with fresh ideas and ready to take action. The goal is that we have a better understanding of how we as a community can tackle housing attainability across the region. I want you to put a pin in your calendar for June 21st. That is going to be the next iteration in the speaker series that's going to take place at Crystal Bridges and focus on community engagement. With that, I'd like to bring 
Randy Wilburn to the stage, who's the host of the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast. And if our other panelists would like to make their way up here, we'll get started. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Duke. Appreciate that. It's good to see everybody here today. I'm excited to share this particular event. This is a little different than what we normally do. I think the last time we had this event when Victor Dover came, and really, I encourage you to check out the, or listen to that particular podcast episode that we did with Victor. But this is actually, we're recording this live. So if any of you have ever said, I want to be on a podcast one day, today is your lucky day. You're all going to be on the podcast. So just think of yourself as podcast famous now. But I host the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast, which covers the intersection of business, culture, entrepreneurship, and life here in the Ozarks. And this is a very important topic to all of us. Every single person in this room should care about what we are discussing today because it will make a difference for what this region looks like in the next 15, 20, 30 years. And so that way our grandkids can look back at us and say, man, I'm really proud of what grandma and grandpa did back in the day when they had the foresight to place make properly in Northwest Arkansas. And so I'm excited to invite or to actually introduce two of our guests today. And the first I'd like to introduce you to is Emily Hamilton. Emily is a distinguished senior research fellow and director of the Urbanity Project at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University in Washington, D.C., Her research focuses on urban economics and land use policy, and she's authored numerous academic articles and policy papers. Emily is an accomplished writer whose works have appeared in esteemed publications such as USA Today, The Washington Post, and The Los Angeles Times. She's also a contributor to the highly regarded blog, Market Urbanism, which I all encourage you guys to to check out. It's a very good blog. Emily's academic achievements include a PhD in economics from George Mason University, Let's welcome Emily Hamilton. Thanks a lot, Randy. Absolutely. And then our, our next speaker may need no introduction. He is a man about town and is well known. Matthew Petty is the CEO of Pattern Zones. He is a highly regarded practitioner who's passionate about making a difference. He specializes in contemporary municipal best practices, and his goal is to help cities manage for higher revenues and happier communities. Matthew is the mastermind behind Pattern Zones, a novel technique that enables cities to guide development by pre-approving high-quality infill buildings for local use. This program helps to lower barriers to small parcel development, making it possible for residents and builders to engage in sprawl repair, appropriate infill, and Main Street commerce. Matthew has facilitated or consulted for municipalities or civic organizations in over a dozen communities, including Overland Park, Memphis, South Bend, Orlando, Salt Lake City, Houston, and others. Wow, that's a lot. He's also an accomplished council member, having been elected four times and serving for almost 13 years in Fayetteville, Arkansas. During his tenure, Matthew sponsored new data-based processes within a placemaking framework in transportation and tourism budgets. His planning and design proposals have won grants from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Knight Foundation, the Walton Family Foundation, and others. The Congress for the New Urbanism awarded his work national honors. Please give a warm welcome to Matthew Petty. Well, it's great to have you guys both here. And Emily, I want to start with you because you've done so much research in this whole idea about housing affordability and the solutions that are available to people all over the country. And one of the things that you said to me offline was how 
you know, at the state level, things are happening now throughout the country that are impacting what we see at a local level. And I think it's important for all of us to kind of understand what that looks like and why we should be aware of what the possibilities are for new laws and new requirements that come down from the state level. I would love for you just to kind of talk briefly specifically about some of the most recent bills that have come out, like the Montana housing bill and a bill in Washington state that were recently presented. Yeah. So historically, housing affordability was a real challenge in a few coastal locations in the country. But in the the past decade or so, we're seeing increasing affordability problems in all parts of the country. Northwest Arkansas, you mentioned Montana, a state that has um, historically been relatively accessible to people at a broad range of income levels. But in recent years, much like this area, has just seen an explosion in house prices due to a big increase in demand for housing and not enough housing being built to keep up with that. So what we've seen there is the governor, Governor Gianforte, really went into this legislative session with a housing focus and said, we are going to do something to improve housing abundance and affordability across the whole state. And coming out of his initiative, four important bills look like they're on their way to passage there to increase opportunities for more and less expensive housing to be built, uh, ranging from accessory dwelling units up to allowing uh, multifamily housing to be built in the state's commercial zones, like some localities here have done as well. And what we've seen from other states that have been experimenting with this approach is that in some cases, states have taken the lead with with state legislators and governors setting new rules that limit the extent to which their localities can limit housing construction. But these rules work best when they have a willing partner in their localities. Uh, California has the longest history with state-level policy intended to make it easier to build housing because they've had the longest-standing affordability problems. But what we see is that in parts of the state where localities have, for example, embraced accessory dwelling units, they're being built in large numbers and successfully improving housing affordability. But where localities aren't on board with that agenda, it can still be really hard to build them. So it's really a partnership across the public sector, across the private sector, states and localities that all need to be working in the direction of legalizing less expensive housing construction. Yeah. And Matthew, you want to add anything to that? I think one of the main points that I appreciate most from what you said, Emily, is the notion of partnership. Whether we're looking at Arkansas or other states or cities and towns here in other states, what I've seen in my work is that As much as leaders, whether they're employers, government leaders, or community leaders, if they want to do the right thing, even if they put all of their resources at their disposal into it, cities and towns everywhere still need help from the states in order to actually adequately address this problem. Yeah. So it certainly is a, it is, there is a process that is involved that everybody needs to be aware of. And I think if nothing else, the takeaway here for a lot of the people listening is that you need to have a better understanding of the procedures that take place at the state level as well as at the local level, because I think there can be confusion. Yes, there's absolutely. There's tons of confusion about the procedures, really in the full stack of how housing gets developed, from how laws actually get created and rewritten 
but also to just the normal everyday complaints that we hear about how hard it is to get things permitted and how permitting needs to be easier. Um, so th these are um, these are challenges that when you start to inventory them and add them all up together, it becomes really apparent that there isn't one solution that we could just all get consensus around and implement it and it would fix these issues. It's a wicked problem. There are a lot of things that we're going to have to implement in order to address this, whether we're just trying to address it in one of our cities and towns, statewide or across the country. Yeah. And so, Emily, you talked about, you wrote a brief, a policy brief back in July of 22 called Housing Reform in the States, a Menu of Options for 2023. And we're going to make sure that everybody here gets a copy of this policy brief, as well as a presentation that Emily had put together, which I think will kind of visually crystallize for you some of the challenges that localities across the country, including Northwest Arkansas, are facing when it comes to creating more affordable housing availability. But in this particular policy brief, you kind of outlined a number of things that lawmakers around the country could consider in their upcoming legislative sessions. And there were five categories, and I'd love for you just to talk about those categories. The first was direct limits on local regulations, such as those laws discussed, streamlining procedures. You also mentioned fiscal innovations and narrowing the scope of zoning authority. And then the final one was updating construction standard. Mm -hmm. So I'd love for you maybe just to kind of start with direct limits on local regulation and how that plays into this whole process of building affordable housing. Sure. So that's where we've seen the most action so far at the state level is, for example, a state legislature and governor coming in and saying, across our whole state, homeowners are going to be allowed to add an accessory dwelling unit. So that might be a backyard cottage or converting a garage into an apartment or a basement apartment, just giving the right to homeowners to use their property in a little bit different way, providing housing for perhaps a family member or to rent out as an additional source of income. That's the, the most proven area because it's had the, the most experience with, with state-level intervention where these limits that just tweak the authority that local governments have to restrict housing supply can, can be rolled back just slightly to allow a little bit more housing to be built. And going beyond accessory dwelling units, we've seen state bills introduced that would set limits on lot size requirements in places that are, are served with adequate infrastructure to support small lot development. Some states have allowed single family zones to accommodate between two and four units rather than exclusively single family development. And then, as I mentioned, in Montana, there's a new statewide policy allowing apartments to be built in areas that were previously zoned exclusively for commercial development. And that can make a ton of sense. And it's something that we've seen localities in Northwest Arkansas already adopting is allowing their commercial zones to also accommodate residential. So if, for example, we see a strip mall that's experiencing high vacancy and is, is no longer serving the community very well, it can be a real win-win to allow that site to be repurposed when it's no longer generating a lot of, of tax revenue. It might be becoming a blight because it's 
vacant and creating opportunities for people to live in places that already have all that infrastructure in place. Yeah. And you actually mentioned earlier, you spoke specifically of Bentonville and their move to put multifamilies in commercial zones. Did you have a chance to look closely at that and how that came about? Yeah. So that has, is a reform that is intended to, to do just that, to open up sites in Bentonville where there is relatively ill-used commercial space and to create an opportunity for much-needed multifamily housing to be built. Where I live in Northern Virginia, there's been a really big experiment with this, particularly in Tyson's in Fairfax County, Virginia, which is an area that was built out with office parks and retail car dealerships, almost entirely commercial use that had fallen on hard times over decades. I was experiencing increased office and retail vacancy. And they have allowed lots and lots of multifamily housing to be built there, creating opportunities for people to live in a a very opportunity area in a type of housing that just wasn't allowed uh, prior to these reforms. Yeah. And then also Fayetteville is another city that is working on, they're having success with ADUs, also some modifications to the commercial parking requirements. Would you be able to speak to that at all and, and just maybe elaborate on the success that the ADUs, because it seems like ADUs across the country, more and more people are deciding that cottages in their backyard are a good option, whether you have an elderly parent, I know I have one, but, or you just want to maybe think about making some extra income through short-term rental, if your local policies allow for that, that ADUs certainly create an, an opportunity for a homeowner. That's right. Yeah. And Fayetteville, like many college towns, has a big demand for this type of housing, whether that's to accommodate tourists in in short-term rentals or perhaps student rentals. It can be a, a really good match for that type of community. And it's often the most politically feasible type of housing reform because, as you say, so many homeowners can see themselves wanting one of these units, if not today, maybe at some point down the road. Yeah. Well, and Matthew, I want to ask you, how does this whole, and I'd I'd love for you just to kind of quickly explain pattern zones for our listeners, as well as the audience here. I'd love for you just to kind of elaborate on how pattern zones and what you've come up with, you know, perfectly helps out or supports these efforts that we just talked about. Sure. You know, in my time in Fayetteville, I was really honored to be part of the team that helped create some of those new laws around ADUs and the like and, and allowing uses to mix. And in continuation of that, you know, we have a personal theory that we subscribe to, which is housing is an old challenge. It's well known now. It's happening almost everywhere in metros that are growing. And we've also tried to address housing with regulations in a lot of different ways as as a nation. And we have the recognition that none of those ways have worked. And that means we have to try new things. And so in that spirit, we would try to do new things with ADUs. And building upon those examples of success, what I work on now is a novel technique. There are about a dozen programs like this across the country. We're one of the firms, along with a handful of others, that are doing programs like this. And what we help cities do is pre-approve buildings for construction. And right now, there's an interesting statistic that only 2% of residential buildings in the country are actually worked on by an architect. And we have a saying that 
we say bad design can ruin good ideas for the public. And oftentimes what happens when you look at different cities and different towns that are trying new things is the theory underlying the ideas might actually be pretty sound. But the way that they get implemented can be in fits and starts. It can create a discontent, not just among builders, but also if the quality is poor in the end results, it creates a discontent among the public and the neighbors and the residents and really delegitimizes these programs. And so our idea to pre-approve buildings and to help cities pre-approve high quality buildings gets at this from a couple of important perspectives. One, of course, we all know permitting, even for good projects that we're all enthusiastic about, is getting slower everywhere every year. That's a trend that has to be reversed. And none of the old solutions for housing or for zoning can do that. We have to have something new. The other issue is that when we write laws and we try to justify them, we we try to write defensible laws and present them to the public, to stakeholders, we're asking people to interpret a legal paragraph or a legal page. And it's ripe for misunderstanding at the least, outright misinterpretation or even misapplication once it's implemented. But when you pre-approve a building, that process looks entirely different because now we can hold up a 3D model, we can present a rendering, the plans that are actually going to be pre-approved in a community. It upends the normal conversation that com- conversations that communities struggle with whenever they're trying to decide how will they implement the vision that they share for their own neighborhoods. If you show the right watercolor image, the right renderings, almost any everybody you talk to in a town hall agrees that that's what they want. We have good planning processes for that. But whenever it comes to actually how we do it and we look at the laws that are required to make that happen, everyone, this is a very natural response, almost everybody thinks of the worst that could happen. And as a council member, I heard all the time, these ideas you're talking about sound great, but how can we be sure that's what's going to happen? So these systems of pre-approved building programs are meant to address exactly that by showing a program where what you see is what you will actually get. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, and that puts it that puts it out there very clearly for us. Thank you for that. What What is uh, one of the things that you mentioned, Emily, in your brief, and this is the second item, was the streamlining pro- procedures, which Matthew has kind of alluded to. I would love to, for you to kind of expand some of the areas or ways that we could be, we should be thinking about what that stream, how to streamline the procedures properly, right? So that, that, that there is a clear understanding of how we get from A to Z when it comes to any project that we're trying to undertake. And especially for all of these professionals out here, there are developers here, there are real estate agents, everybody wants to get something done. But there's always there's always something to gunk up the the process. And so I'd love for you just to speak a little bit about the streamlining aspects of this. Certainly. Yeah. And I I think Matthew's exactly right that uh, we need new ways to think about this approval process because no one is happy with the status quo. Uh, I don't think any planners want to see subdivisions taking many months to get approved. Builders certainly don't. Um, And even the members of the public who are attending these meetings to weigh in on this project probably don't want to be spending hours and hours and hours of their life to do so. I think it's a really difficult uh, problem to address from a high level. And that's why we've seen more state policymakers focusing on the zoning rules on the books rather than the approval process is because it varies so much from place to place and where the bottlenecks are 
are a highly local issue. One of the bills in Montana is intended to streamline the subdivision review process for projects that are in compliance with a locality's comprehensive plan, which is, I think, what many planners would like to see the process looking like. That's the philosophy many of them have is that community input should be heard and incorporated at the comprehensive plan stage rather than project by project, which is what we see often in in real time. Now, how well the the Montana bill will work, I think, remains to be seen because it's it's really the first of its kind. But I think that's a, a great approach. And what we saw there is that people in the industry, local officials, state officials, uh, were all very much on the same page about at the least the intent of this law um, and creating a, a better planning process that works for everyone. And I think that that the pattern zones approach very much could fit in with helping a more streamlined process deliver the results that everyone wants to see. You mentioned there was one item that you mentioned in here, and I wanted to ask you about it. There is one option number six, which is reform protest petitions. Could you speak a little bit about that and and how that has been impacted in several states around the country? And I'd be curious to know if you know what the laws are here in in Arkansas with regard to that. Yes, that came up this morning. And I believe Arkansas does not have a protest petition law, but I'd be happy to confirm that. Where it's been most famously used is in Texas. And their state law allows a group of residents who are opposed to a rezoning to gather signatures and a certain threshold of signatures is uh, required to, to create a successful protest petition. And once that is achieved, a supermajority of of the local council would have to vote in support of a rezoning for any rezoning to take place. And the city of Austin was considering a big rezoning where obviously there's a serious need for more and less expensive housing to be built. And the rezoning was intended to make that possible. But a group of citizens created a successful protest petition. In Texas, it's called a valid petition, which state courts have held means that a citywide rezoning would require a supermajority council vote to take place. You know, I'm curious, as I'm listening to you talk about this and some of the challenges that these different localities and municipalities face, have you seen any examples of really smart growth in like the last five to 10 years that that, you know, folks here in Northwest Arkansas can look to and say, that's a good idea. That's a good that we should consider. Because we talked about it earlier. We said there's nothing new under the sun, right? We're all trying to reinvent the wheel here. But there are people that are figuring this out and getting it right. And I think we're all thinking about all the new people that are coming here to Northwest Arkansas. We've got 30, 30 or 32 net new people a day relocating here. The numbers are astounding. For those of you that are that are old heads and have been here forever and a day, you are probably blown away at how much this area has grown. I've only been here eight years and I'm blown away every day at how much the area has grown. But I'd love for you just to speak about that and maybe some examples that we can look to that give us, shine a light on what successful growth looks like. Yeah. Uh, so I mentioned allowing multifamily to be built in areas that are, are currently 
developed as relatively low value commercial uses. That's one approach that I'm very bullish on and that we're seeing work really well in lots of different types of cities across the country. Another is small lot, single family development, which of course is is very much like larger lot, single development, single family development, but just creates the opportunity for home builders and home buyers to economize on land. And Isabel of the Northwest Arkansas Workforce Housing Council pointed out that these birdhouses on all of your tables are very much that type of small lot, single family development that looks like what we think of in so many historic U.S. cities and towns, but often isn't allowed under large minimum lot size requirements that that mandate that every new house has to have a large yard of its own. The city of Houston, to take another Texas example, has had the most success with legalizing small lot, single family development in 1998. And then again, in 2013, they reformed minimum lot size requirements there to allow this small lot development. And they've seen 80,000 small lot houses be built there in, in neighborhoods of all types, creating an option for home ownership that's much less expensive than it would be if those larger lots were required. And this is just one piece of Houston's overall approach to housing, but it's one factor in why they have a house price below the national median. The, the median house price in Houston is less than the national median, even though they've been experiencing faster than average growth for many years. You and I, Randy, talked a little bit about Palisades Park, New Jersey, which is a a small town outside of New York City that we're both interested in. And they allow uh, two-family redevelopment, which actually looks very much like Houston's small lot development because Palisades Park allows single-family houses to be replaced with side-by-side duplexes allowing a a very incremental approach to redevelopment that makes room for more households to take advantage of the locality over time. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And I, and I know, I I know that area very well, and it it is a high density area and those, those multifamilies make a huge difference and the affordability factors there. Cause when you, they're just a stone's throw from New York city and nobody can afford to live in the city, but they can come right across the bridge into Palisades park and, you know, buy something and, and have, uh, have, get, find affordable housing. Matthew, I want to ask you this question. And I think this is an important question for everybody in this room to consider. And because you have sat on both sides of the table, if you will, from a policy perspective, as well as from, you know, upholding and, and looking at law within a lo- location, what would you say is the best way to frame this conversation for these practitioners in the room when they're trying to encourage people that, hey, you know, maybe a multifamily house on this property would be a better option. Right. I mean, I get it. I'm from I came from Boston. I was in Boston for 17 years. All I knew were triple deckers and multi and, and duplexes. And it was that, the first thing I thought about when I came here. I told my wife, oh, we should build a duplex. And people were like, well, no, nobody wants to build duplexes here. And I was like, well, how do you have that conversation and how do you start having it where that is an acceptable option and not the first choice just to buy a single family home 
And that's, you know, what, you know, I want to get my plot of land and call it a day. Oh, gosh, Randy, you know, how to, how to frame it is a question that I think everybody who's really active in this sector struggles with every engagement, every project. And it's something I've thought a lot about. So I'll do, I'll do my best. <laughs> you know, first, you know, I think it's, I, I bet everybody in the room or most people in the room, when you hear the word duplex and you imagine it, you don't imagine something that is particularly attractive, right? And that's probably because the era in which our codes were reformed and the era in which the resulting housing was was constructed and what the typical construction practices were of the day. But it's actually not necessarily the case that multifamily housing, duplexes and the like have to be what you imagine. They can look much different. And in other communities and older communities where they have more legacy, you actually find a lot of charming examples of these sorts of things. So I think one part of that answer is to upend our expectations for what multifamily housing actually looks like and how it exists in our community. But that's not the most important part of that answer. I think the most important answer and how to frame it is how to make things actually relatable. You know, I think we're sitting here, we decided to come to this, to buy a ticket, to come and eat, eat lunch and, and listen with one another. And people we know, people in this room, our friends and families uh, outside of this room, probably when this comes up, they wonder somewhere in their thought process, why should I make this one of the issues that I care about, right? If you're one of the fortunate ones, like I am, to have bought a home with a low interest rate, great. That's going to be an amazing flex for the next 20 years for every millennial that got to buy a home with a low, low interest rate. If you're somebody that was able to buy a home 20 years ago, fantastic. Great for you. Why, why should you care? People who are moving here, they're not our friends and family yet. You know, why should we care how much that affects our region? Well, the answer is because you probably have friends and family that are going to go off and there someday they might like to come back. And if you're a member of the older generation, I encourage you to ask yourself. And if you're a planner to encourage people to ask this question of themselves, where will your kids come back to? Are they just going to live in your home again? Are you going to downsize and still have a space for them even to do that? If you're an employer, and employers I know already struggle with this question, where will your employees live? Will they be able to afford the commute if the only kind of place that they can afford is way out on the edge of the region? These are really practical questions. And in a lot of cases, they can become very personal. I would love for my mother and father uh, to move over here in, in their retirement and be able to spend more time with, with me and with their grandkids, but it's not possible. And it's not possible as a result of policies that were implemented in the 60s and the 70s. So I think those are the, the first two answers. And the last piece is, well, can we convince people that there's something that we can do about it so that it's not just frustration, it's not just recognition that these kinds of issues around housing actually could have a personal impact on our own lives. And the answer for that is maybe in the past, we're not sure if there's something we can do, but the answer has to be now. Now the answer is there's absolutely things that we can do to address the housing challenge. It may not work in the first 12 months, but it could work and would work if we were aggressive, if we put it on a reasonable timeline, just like any other major strategic effort, whether it's in business or in government or, or, or in society. So that's what I would say, you know, frame it for the personal, the relatable, and make the claim that if we do things a little bit differently, if we don't just rely on the laws 
that somebody else wrote in the late 60s and early 70s to solve this problem, we actually can fix it. Yeah, you know, and I, I think I had mentioned to one of you earlier that just to bring it home, and I thought for everybody here, how many of you guys have been to Yayo's in Bentonville? Show of hands. Chef Rafael Rios makes the best burrito in the world. Now, he dealt with two challenges in the last three years. One was the pandemic. We were all acutely aware of that. His second challenge, he can't keep employees because they can't afford to live near his location. So here you have a James Beard nominated chef. Like we should be a proud of that, that accomplishment first and foremost. He can't even keep employees. And he, he told me the other day, he said, if I could just get people that could live within five, a five mile radius, he said back in 2013, 2014, 2015, it was possible. After that, it slowly went, got away from him. And that's when he started to see his employment challenges come up. And now if you walk in there, he runs basically a skeleton crew at all times. And that's a shame because he is a nationally recognized chef with some of the best food out there. But that's just to bring it home for you how this problem, if we don't solve it here in Northwest Arkansas specifically, is going to impact us. So as much as we talk about Slaughter Pen and how great the Greenway is and Crystal Bridges, you know, we're all going to be taking flights and shuttles to get from our homes to enjoy all of these wonderful amenities that Northwest Arkansas has to offer. That's why this conversation is so important. So I don't want to scare you guys, but, you know. It's incumbent upon all of us to take this on and figure out a way to solve the problem. So, well, we're going to try to land this plane. And, and I, I would love for you, uh, Emily, in the last few minutes that we have before we get to Q&A, because I know some of you have some questions. I'd love for you just to kind of put a, a pen in this conversation so that we have a full understanding of wh what our marching orders are as we leave here today. Sure. Well, I, I completely agree with what Matthew said, that these Proposals take time to work because the undersupply of housing that Northwest Arkansas and so many other parts of the country have developed have been decades in the process as to the, the effects of these rules from the 60s and 70s are finally starting to become clear when it comes to housing affordability. But we're actually seeing some promising signs that in places that are changing their rules to make it possible to build less expensive housing. They certainly don't solve problems overnight, but we do see results where first off, new construction isn't as expensive as it had to be prior to some of these reforms taking place. Particularly with respect to something like accessory dwelling units, these can provide new housing right away that's less expensive than alternatives that are on the market. And places that have adopted these more pro-housing, pro-affordability reforms really are seeing measurable results, improving access to housing in their communities for people at a wide range of income levels. Matthew, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I would just add one thing, which is we know something is going to happen and, and something is going to break if it doesn't happen soon enough. And I... You know, I was struck, I was on a gig, uh, I had to do a bunch of interviews of employers, decision makers in the Sacramento Valley about housing, and I went in kind of jaded, and I was completely surprised by the results of these interviews, because to a person, everyone there said housing is our major crisis, it's, it's, it's the number one thing we got to focus on, we 
where should it be built? And they, they say it has to be built in town where we already have services. And I was stunned that this was a universal opinion. And so I started to ask why, what happened that made this opinion, this assessment so universal? I'm used to way more controversy than that around housing solutions, even around the acknowledgement of ha- housing issues. And for them, it was, there were so many people who were experiencing homelessness. They were on every intersection, in every park, every gas station, every open door uh, of every department store. And it took that in the Sacramento Valley for them to have this universal consensus that housing was an extreme challenge that had to be addressed. And when we wonder if we should do something, when that happens here, if we don't do something, People will stop wondering if it's time. And I think it's our job to make sure that we don't let it get so far, that we don't let so many people suffer along the way before we have that recognition. Otherwise, the state might step in and say cities and towns aren't acting fast enough. The feds might step in. It's becoming that level uh, of an issue all around. And we, have, we do have a chance to get ahead of it. And while we are getting ahead of it, you know, let's not pause too long to give ourselves credit for taking action now. Let's make sure we keep on top of it. Yeah, that's great. Well put. Now is the time, folks. This is the reason why this Future is Now speaker series is so important, because, you know, we have to have these conversations. It's incumbent upon all of us collectively, not just the folks here, not just Duke McClarty and his team, Isabel Gamar and the rest of the great folks at the Northwest Arkansas Council. We all shoulder this responsibility. So you may have to saddle up to some of your NIMBY friends, or maybe that's some of you in this room, which is fine. But we all need to be looking at the bigger picture of what we want Northwest Arkansas to be in the next 5, 10 to 15 years. And there is such a thing as smart growth and proper placemaking. And I think if we all come into one accord, if, if we can find that, that single strand of truth, then I think we could have a lot of success here in Northwest Arkansas. So thank you guys so much for participating in this. Let's give these guys a round of applause. Emily Hamilton and Matthew Petty. Um, We certainly want to take a few questions. I know some of you are chomping at the bit to get on a mic. And so Nathan has a mic over here. If you'd like to ask a question of these experts, now's the time. Yes, Scott, question. For those who are opposed to some of the the types of denser growth that is coming, how would you address specifically the question that, or specifically the objection of like, you know, these new apartments are being built, they're being built above market value or like above the current market average for rent. How do you explain that more housing is the only way to address that affordability problem? Yeah, great question. It's definitely true that that new construction tends to be more expensive than older construction. And that's often just because it's it's nicer, it's fancier, has the amenities that, that people want today that might not have been present in apartments that were built decades ago. But increasingly, there's empirical research showing that new multifamily housing that's built within a, a specific neighborhood lowers rents in existing buildings that are near it. As people move from older buildings into newer buildings, because those newer buildings offer what they want, they're freeing up their old housing for someone else, likely someone else who makes a little bit less money, creating 
improved affordability as this chain carries out with people moving into housing that better suits their needs and freeing up other housing for other households to move into. In some places, we see the reverse, which is is really unfortunate from an affordability perspective, where existing housing, rather than getting less expensive over time, becomes more expensive over time. And people have to pay ridiculous amounts of money for low-quality housing just because not enough is getting built to meet people's needs. Matthew, you want to add anything to that? You know, I th- uh, everything Emily said is spot on. Even if you eliminate everything, the cost of construction is still increasing year over year. And that is the number one thing that drives new construction prices. We can say it's developers who are Darth Vader's and that's the reason why it's, it's, it's greed and so on and so forth. But the number one factor is, is new construction uh, pricing. You know, I, I would say this. What's the alternative to no to building these things. When we don't build houses and there aren't enough houses, that means people end up not being in houses. That's what that means. And so I think we have to put this in terms of trade-offs. Like, are we willing to accept, are we willing to pay the cost as a society of not building new housing, of not building enough housing? And for me, that answer is absolutely not. That is not a cost I'm willing to pay. And the last thing is, look, it's really easy to say this is just a real estate problem or it's just a construction industry problem or it's just a legal or a permitting problem. But we have to look at the history, all of it as a system over the last 40 or 50 years. And if wages don't come up with construction pricing, housing will never become affordable. So that also has to be part of the conversation as we do this. Yes, sir. Thank you. I've recently had the opportunity to sit in with the city of Bentonville on affordable housing task force. Lots of conversation that I could add to this and needs to be added, but I won't take all that time right now. Part of affordable housing conversation is how do we make it affordable for buyers? Because one of the parts of that study were that if we built affordable housing options, that we were experiencing some challenges with maybe investors would buy them. They would become rental units rather than owner-occupied. So how do we work on that issue? That's one question. And then the other thing that I noted really, really specifically about these affordable housing conversations is no one ever talks about manufactured housing. Mm. And you know what? There's plenty of great, great examples throughout the country where you're talking about Arizona or Florida or Texas, where there are wonderful and well-kept manufactured housing communities where retirees move, where young people can move. One of my best friends lives in an over 55 community of manufactured houses in Tampa, Florida. It was affordable for him to do that. Why don't we talk about that? That's Thank you for that. Those are two really good questions. Those are juicy ones. You know, and just to add to what he just said here, one of the things, and I don't know if this is coming for us here in Northwest Arkansas, is deed-restricted housing. I know that uh, in Massachusetts, the mass housing, all the finance agency stuff that they put out, a lot of the affordable housing properties that they underwrote had deed restrictive covenants on them. And so I'd be curious to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, on the deed restricted approach, I've studied what's often called inclusionary zoning in the Baltimore, Washington region, which, which has the country's longest history with these programs. And what I found there 
is that unfortunately, the localities that adopted mandatory inclusionary zoning programs where developers are required to provide a certain amount of below market rate housing as a condition of building new multifamily housing is that those localities that adopted those programs experienced faster growth in their market rate house prices than they could have expected without those programs. So these inclusionary zoning programs can act as a tax on housing construction, which is the very thing we we want to see more of in order to improve access to housing. So I think that the, the best way to address affordability rather than putting it on the industry to provide is putting public dollars toward that, whether that looks like vouchers or other types of programs to provide below market rate housing. To your question on on manufactured housing, I agree that's a, a fantastic point. And just as the country needs the affordability of manufactured housing more than ever, we are seeing less of these units being delivered over time. And part of the reason for that is that many localities are seeing their mobile home parks be redeveloped over time, which might make a lot of sense if that uh, park is located in an area that over time has become a better site for multifamily housing or some other type of development. Redevelopment might make total sense But localities aren't then following that up with zoning new places where manufactured housing is allowed to be built. And the amount of land in the country that's zoned for mobile home parks is shrinking over time. And I think they absolutely should be a part of the housing affordability toolkit. Yeah, just two quick things on manufactured housing. I completely agree. It can be done well. The things that are the the examples that are done well are fantastic. People love living there. People next door love having them there. This is another example of how bad design, especially with respect to durability, can ruin good ideas for, for most people. And then on the issue of how do we make housing affordable for individual buyers? Emily's given some of the best advice on this already today, which is let the parcels be smaller. When you have small parcels and you can subdivide land into smaller parcels, um, the, under, the land underneath the house is not as large, which means it's not as expensive to buy that. And in so many words, what we're saying is small parcels, uh, allowing a little bit more density is really how people of more modest means, people in the middle class can compete with people of higher means that are looking to pur- purchase housing in the community. Thank you for that. We have time for one more question. Uh, Thank you. So two questions. One, education. You're talking about, uh, I hate these things. You have a lot of different stakeholders. You've got planners, government people, you've got uh, developers, builders, and you've got the citizenry. How would you educate the various groups of stakeholders so they can understand what we're trying to accomplish? And then second, what's your view about the smaller cities, you know, like Lincoln, Gentry, Prairie Grove? How are you going to address the affordable housing issue with respect to placemaking in these small places, not just the four corridor cities? Who would like to answer that first? Matthew? Matthew, this sounds like a question for you. Uh, Sure. Um, Well, first on how to educate stakeholders. Everybody's got a different theory of, of leadership and a theory of change. I'll tell you mine whenever it comes to this issue. 
housing is so systemic and it crosses borders. It doesn't end from one city to another that it takes a champion or a team of champions to do this. It isn't enough to do the right report. There's no such thing as the right report that is going to make it to everybody's hands and convince a majority of people. There's no such thing as as publishing the right information or establishing the right work group that is going to solve this issue. That work is necessary, but it's totally insufficient. There have to be people, leaders, who rise to the occasion and say, I am taking this on the road. I'm going to go everywhere I can and explain over and over again, as long as it takes, even if I fail, I won't quit in order to achieve the level of education and consensus that we really need across sectors. And then in terms of small towns, look, small towns can't be left out, period. Anybody who thinks small towns can be left out of this solution and it will still work is definitely wrong, okay? We have to incorporate uh, small towns, and small towns have a ton going for them, okay? It's not just that people may prefer one size community or sense of community over a different sense of community. They have real assets that can be leveraged, and oftentimes what's happened is you can almost think of the land as contaminated, not environmental contamination, but administrative contamination, where what should happen and what the market would most desire for a small town's main street is actually illegal. That has to be fixed, and then a marketing effort might be successful. Anyone want to add anything to that? Well, just to take a a specific example of the the main street issue, I think Fayetteville uh, is a great model of this with the, the parking reform, where oftentimes our historic main streets and areas can become basically illegal to use over time because when they were built, they might not comply with future rules that would be put on them. So increasing the flexibility to put our historic places to new uses over time is really a a win-win and one important piece of this puzzle. And last thing I'll add to your specific question about organizations or how can you get people involved? Everybody in this room, whether you're a realtor, a broker, planner, um, any type, any ancillary organization that serves the the real estate marketplace, there is an organization called NeighborWorks America, which I would highly encourage you to get involved with. Their website is neighborworks.org. I facilitated trainings with them for more than a decade and we worked with individuals across the country to instill or imp- help them implement best practices back in their local communities. So again, it's, it does take a village. You also need to connect with people that are outside of this marketplace of Northwest Arkansas as well, because what you'll find is that some people have already been where you're trying to go and you can lean on them for help and understanding, education and guidance that will help you do the best work for your community here in Northwest Arkansas. And we need each and every one of you to be able to do that. So let's give these guys another round of applause. And let's give Randy a big round of applause also. We hope you enjoyed this episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas. Check us out each and every week, available anywhere that great podcasts can be found. For show notes or more information on becoming a guest, visit IamNorthwestArkansas.com. We'll see you next week on I Am Northwest Arkansas.